Welcome to The Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, less ukulele. So far, that's true, but we'll see what we can do. Now, before we get into the meat of the episode, I want to make sure you make sure to swing by sponsor Atlantic Brewing's booth during HomebrewCon on Thursday, 627, post our seminar and book signing at 415-ish, or actually go there anytime on Thursday, because we're going to be at the booth helping guide a massive experiment. If you want to know the results, you're going to have to come by our live podcast on Friday at 628 at Country Malt Homebrew Group's booth at 2 p.m. You won't be able to miss us. You'll definitely be able to hear us. And meanwhile, on this episode, we take a step into the lager world and explore the whys and wherefores of the American glass of nothing called American lager. How did we get this beer? How did this style rise and how can you survive the ultimate test of your brewing skills in making a long, tall glass of nothing? After all, you got nowhere to hide now. But before all that, here's a word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publisher of none other than Simple Home Brewing by two guys named Denny Kahn and Drew Beecham. Maybe, just maybe, you've heard of them. If you want to streamline your brew day, make great beer, and have a blast in the process, head over to BrewersPublications.com and buy a copy of Simple Homebrewing. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, who invites you to attend HomebrewCon this June 27th to June 29th in Providence, Rhode Island. HomebrewCon brings 3,000 homebrewers together for three days of brewing, seminars, nighttime events, and camaraderie. HomebrewCon is also the leading showcase of brewing supplies and equipment. Visit homebrewcon.org to learn more. Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring Artisan Malt House Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout. Plus, we've got pro-level equipment and the best-in-cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same-day order processing, and guaranteed two-day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for listening to those messages from our fine, fine sponsors. Remember, if you interact with any of them, tell them that you heard about them here on The Brew Files so they know their money is well spent. The most popular single style in all of America was born of necessity and turned into a meteor profit. And, and it's no secret that if you go back and you listen to all the interviews that we've talked you know, with all those various brewers over time in the main show... We used to always ask them what they like to drink. We stopped asking that because the answer almost always comes down to 
Well, a pilsner or a lager of some variety. Coors Light was often the choice. Well, and I was going to say, and the surprising number of times that some sort of American uh, lager, like a Coors Light or Coors Banquet even, you know, came up, always kind of surprised me. Yeah, well, I mean, chefs too, uh, you know, it seems like at the end of the night, they don't want to like sit down and have a barley wine. They want something light, crisp, and refreshing. Right. Or, you know, hey, for chefs, I want to have a burger and not like this fancy French concoction. Yeah. Because, I mean, yeah, it makes sense. Because at the end of a very hard day, all you want is a beer, something simple, something undemanding, and kind of just a moment of zen where you can be one with emptiness. Ooh, that sounds like my favorite thing to do. Well, yes, but this time with beer and not with the stuff you grow in your garden. (laughs) Oh, that. What's your history with, shall we say, American beer-flavored beer? Not not very much, to tell you the truth. Um, you know, I never uh, I never went through a Bud Light phase, anything like that. Uh, I guess when I was playing in bars back in the day, I drank Bud Long Necks, uh, because those are supposed to be better tasting than uh, Bud Short Stubby Bottles. Uh, I uh, moved on after that to uh, to uh, Henry Weinhard, uh, their lager, and I'm not sure you would really call that an American light lager. I would say that probably the last one I had was maybe 15 years ago when I was studying for the BJCP exam, and I got myself a Bud Light, sat down on the deck on a 95-degree day and decided if ever there was going to be a right day for a Bud Light, this was it. And I couldn't even finish it because it was so sweet, I didn't find it refreshing at all. (laughs) I still occasionally will uh, drain back, like, say, a Pabst or a Coors Banquet because those are, I think, two of the better versions of the American lager style. So, yeah, if you haven't figured out, what we're going to be talking about today is sort of the whole range of the American pale lager, where it started and where it is now. And yes, we're going a little bit beyond your college days because, well, it's time for us to understand how to make this thing that is, well, simultaneously the most bland thing you can make and the hardest thing you can make. Basically saying, as much as I like to bag on the style, as much as we all like to bag on the style, I think, it needs to be stated as a basic fact of life that you have nowhere to hide in this style. There's nothing protecting you from your mistakes in an American lager. Any water chemistry mistake, process error, fermentation issue, anything is going to shine like a floodlight in midnight Iowa. (laughs) That's an interesting comment. But yeah, I think that... uh... The When I started giving these beers a little bit of respect was when somebody did point out that uh, this is pretty much the hardest style of beer to make. Whether you like it or not, to brew a good one is very, very difficult. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing there to hide your flaws. There's no big malt flavor. There's no hop flavor. There's not even a lot of booze. There's very little body. So, yeah, it takes a pretty steady hand at the tiller to make one of these beers. So no matter how much you like to hate the player you got to respect the game that it is the brewing of American lager. Yep. All right, so we're going to dig in a little bit into lager history and brief. And, of course, as with all history lessons in the beery world, you have to remember, take it with a mug of beer. 
And at least in terms of modern beer history, lagering as a thing, as we really think about it, it develops in Bavaria. Now, that may or may not be the case that that was true for all around the world. But, you know, they who define the style get to, you know, define the history of the style. So the Germans are the ones who we think about with lager. And so they're the ones who have told us their history. And it's interesting because at the time that we think about like the Reinhardt coming up, there's also a lesser known provision that was actually in place for a really long time. It was a summer brewing prohibition in Bavaria, and it went from 1553 until 1850 that you weren't allowed to brew in the warmer summer months because people had figured out that beer went bad during that time, right? You know, hotter beer, hotter fermentations, less less good beer, and more chance for the other critters in your beer other than yeast to sort of take hold and make foul beer. There was a habit in Bavaria of storing the beer in uh, these kind of cold caves for the summer to be able to keep beer fresher longer. So you'd brew stronger beer in March for keeping and over the course of the summer, you'd pull those casts out and serve them as needed. And what was noted was that some of these casts were getting crisper. They they had a, a different flavor and people kind of liked it. It's It was kind of an unintended consequence of a brewing practice, very much kind of like how people are now suddenly discovering that, oh, your beers are getting very dry because you're using Saccharomyces strains with the diastaticus enzyme in it that would do it wouldn't it it would so kind of an unintended consequence or an unintended discovery of uh, from a practice that they were following now bavarian lager beer began to move out into the world as bavarian brewers moved around so this is how you get pilsner being invented by a bavarian brewer in 1842 because he uh, was siphoned away to pilsen in bohemia Uh, 1840 actually saw a brewer coming to philadelphia which uh, by the name of john wagner and he is given the credit for running the first lager brewery in the United States. Uh, the brewery was short-lived, uh, however, so apparently lager beer was not a thing that took off very, very quickly uh, here in America. And the reason for that? Well, let's get into that. What Wagner and his successors in lager brewing had figured out was that American brewing ingredients at the time uh, and the environments that we could make at the time in the 1800s kind of sucked. For lager brewing. Putting it mildly, huh? They were terrible. Our hops were catty and rough. You know, you can kind of think cluster because, well, cluster was the hop that we had at the time. So a lot of blackberry and cat pee. I I was going to say, those are two of my favorite flavors I know. Mm -hmm. And our barley was husky uh, and and protonaceous because it was all six row. Uh, we brewed plenty of English style stuff here in the States, you know, so we've talked about porters. We talked a little bit about sparkling ales. And if you guys remember, uh, sometime last year, we talked about the really kind of strong ales, like the Albany ale that were very popular, but the stuff that we really had was really not any good for brewing a delicate beer, you know, like a, a Bavarian lager real quick. What is six row six row? I mean, I rarely see it anymore in my brew supply shops. I do know it's still around. For the most part in the world, except for here in the U.S., six rows used as animal feed. Yeah, man. And I think that even here in the U.S., you have to go out of your way to find it. Again, most of our barley that we use these days is two row. Uh, Budweiser still claims that they use six row as an ingredient. And the difference between two row and six row is the number of kernels growing on the barley stock and the size of the kernel. Um, six row tends to be smaller kernels with a greater ratio of husk to endosperm which ironically makes for great laudering, but it 
does impart a huskiness, I think, to some of the beers. Yeah, I've always heard it described as like a graininess, but I think it's it's the same thing. And again, you can tell two row from six row just by looking at the head of the barley plant and seeing how many rows of kernels there are there. Yeah, and then even if you don't see the barley stalk itself, you can definitely tell side by side, you know, which is which just by looking at the kernels. Even though the, all the modern six row that we use is all from a, uh, a varieties called Larkin uh, or Larker, uh, uh, yeah, Larker uh, barley, which st- stood for large kernel. And also these older varieties before Larker had lousily high protein content. And that led to two things, one of which is popular nowadays and the other one not, haziness. And the other one was also a harshness in the beers. So that extra protein content made for shorter-lived beer that just didn't taste as good. Um, It did have one advantage, which is that Six Row is enzymatically hot. It has a lot more of the diastatic enzymes that that we like to have. So it allowed for people to use more starch sources that didn't have enzymes in the mash and still be able to convert them. This is going to come into play. Much of the country is also way too hot to do loggers without some sort of artificial refrigeration or large ice houses uh, somewhat nearby. And you'll notice that a lot of the traditional centers of American brewing were in cold areas where you could very easily have ice throughout the year. So like upstate New York, Philadelphia, Milwaukee, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, really, the uh, development of ice houses and loggers kind of go hand in hand. I uh, read a really fun and interesting book called Brewed in the Pacific Northwest about the the history of brewing in the Pacific Northwest. Imagine that. And uh, they talk a lot about how, uh, you know, a brewery would build an ice house so that they could uh, brew loggers or that uh, brewery would spring up in a town that already had an ice house in it. But it's really kind of a, a symbiotic relationship between the two. Yeah, and so just like brewers having to figure out how to do ice to do lagers, they had to find some way to remix what was on hand here in the States because too expensive to import everything that you're going to use to make your beer and make what they and the increasing wave of German and Central European immigrants uh, wanted to drink after a hard day of chasing the American dream. So like all clever problem solvers, they adapted. Remember, at this time, we also still hadn't hit the sort of dedicated style snobbery of the world that we have nowadays. We just had the snobbery that, hey, my stuff is better than your stuff. The solution ended up being two things that America has in both high quality and in high quantity. And those are corn and rice. Yes, these are the dreaded adjuncts that craft beer rallied against. And they didn't just make their way into American produced lagers as a cost-cutting, cheapening the beer move. Rather, they were actually introduced into the beer and the whole style as a method of improving the quality. Because by adding these adjuncts, which had very low protein levels to them, you were able to reduce the harshness, improve the beer's clarity, and cut down the body. And I want to talk about something here real quick in terms of the cheapness, right? Because everybody's like, oh, yeah, the, those big guys, they just use the, the, the corn and the rice because it's cheap. I can't speak so much about the corn, but I do know in the case of Budweiser, for instance, Budweiser is famous for being a rice-based beer. They use a special golden rice grown for them in Louisiana. And at least until the InBev merger, when they became ABI, 
they had rules stipulating the kind of the quality of the the rice that they were using. And arguably the biggest one that they had was that there were to be no broken grains. So they only got the whole rice kernels uh, instead of the broken stuff. Some of it I understand that may have may not change since the ABI merger, but that's all rumor. The golden rice that they were using was more expensive than the barley. At least in the case of Budweiser, yeah, rice definitely was not a cost-cutting move. Is that uh, historically true or is that more recent? I don't know about historically. I do know that it, just before the ABI merger, that was definitely the case. Yeah, right. Oh, definitely these days. That, that's definitely true. What I'm wondering is if maybe uh, it began because rice and corn were cheaper than barley. Oh, no, we're going to get there. But I mean, at least the original the original intent behind the corn and the rice was to was to actually improve the quality of the beer. They were trying to find some way to reduce the harshness of our barley. So, yeah, I mean, that's kind of a, a big point. Now, it does morph over time. As with all things, the styles did evolve away from their Bavarian and Bohemian sources. And, and by just far more than the ingredient choices, the American lagers over time, they became paler. They became more dry finishing. Um, they became lighter, uh, crisper just in part due to the differences in the American climate from, say, Central Europe, uh, in part due to the American feelings about temperance and the eventual rise of prohibition that wiped out not only sort of these really glamorous beer gardens that all of these German origin brewers had uh, created. And I really kind of am jealous of some of these things that you'd see in Milwaukee and whatnot. Those would have been cool to hang out in, but also the very grubby saloons that the brewers operated by the way, this is also why you now have a three-tier system, because in the U.S. prior to Prohibition, uh, brewers owned a lot of the saloons and they had a lot of unsavory practices. But really what ended up happening is over time, because of things here in America, the beers became lighter than what their Bavarian or Bohemian counterparts were. Things changed. Things really changed because of Prohibition. And Prohibition had a lasting impact on the American brewing industry. Brewers did everything during this period of time to survive. They made uh, near beer. They made malt extract. The famous blue ribbon malt extract was made by Pabst. They made soda and other non-alcoholic beverages. And when they came out the other side, many of the brands were either dying and trying to save money in any way possible, or they were in a position to take advantage and start consolidating because they'd had a large enough you know, cash chunk and actual national distribution. So consolidation became this path forward to kind of cashing out as the market became more saturated with the national brands like Budweiser, Miller, Schlitz. You know, a lot of the old, what we now consider to be grandpa beers, they really came up in, in national prominence during this period of time and took over all the smaller regional breweries and eventually killing off that whole thing to the point where we get to the 70s, you know, where America had, what was it, 47 breweries left? Whatever the, the number is that's thrown around. Yeah. And as beer became less of a local specialty and more of just a consumable commodity, more of a, a, a widget, well, once you start down that path of consolidation and commoditization, cost-cutting becomes a thing to increase and maintain profits, in addition to also finding other ways to speed up your brewing. As we've said in the past, time and tank equals money lost. So post-prohibition, you really start to see that move towards what a lot of people were talking about, like American beers becoming, just like American food was becoming, bland, cheap. 
you know, what's the, you know, what's the, the, the minimum amount of quality and the minimum amount of money I have to spend in order to get a product out onto the market in order to avoid offending so many pallets, right? Post-prohibition and particularly post-World War II is when you see a lot of this, the changes to make the style that we have before us today. Again, more adjuncts, fewer hops, lighter body, lower alcohol. But the biggest change came by far with the development of America's number one beer style in 1967. Good old, world-famous, Gabblinger's Diet Beer. Say what? 1967, Gabblinger's Diet Beer from Rheingold Brewery in New York. You wanted to drink Gabblinger's Diet Beer, didn't you? Didn't you when you were a kid? Uh, I was a long way from New York, so I'd never heard of it. How's that for a cop-out? There you go. Well, <laughs> you weren't the only one because it flopped hard. Uh, but the guy who invented it, uh, a food scientist who's actually who actually did a lot to shape things in American food culture, a guy named uh, Dr. Joseph Awades, uh, he took his formulation to make a diet beer to Meisterbrow. And Meisterbrow released Meisterbrow Light, which then promptly got bought by uh, Miller, uh, the whole brewery, who then turned around and then in 1972 launched Miller Light. And Miller Light was really the sort of the first national American light beer. And boy, it almost didn't take off until they got their whole uh, taste great, less filling campaign going with big macho sports stars. You remember those commercials, right? Uh, kind of. I, you know, man, I didn't start drinking until I was uh, much older than most people who started drinking. So a lot of this stuff uh, that I should have found out in my youth, I missed completely. <laughs> what did you waste your youth on? <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I'm sure you, you can figure it out. Yeah, rock and roll and girls. Remember, for all the guff we give about the big beers, the top four brands in the U.S. today are... Bud Light, Coors Light, Miller Light, and Budweiser. And it's been those guys changing places for at least since I, I think around 1989. Uh, you know, which one was in which position? Budweiser, I think, is actually number three now, which is terrifying to Budweiser. Uh, Bud Light is by far and away the number one beer. And uh, light beer dominates. Keep this in mind. All this other stuff that we talk about, all this other stuff that we spend all of our time talking about here on this podcast, in these books that we read and everything else, is just a single glass in a table full of light. Oh, that was very, very poetic. By the way, there is also a connection to light beer and the craft beer world, but hold on. So let's talk these two adjuncts that have been both beloved and reviled and maybe gained some redemption in the craft beer world. Maybe uh, the first one is rice. And my impression usually of a beer made with rice is that it's got a dry finish to it. The, the rice usually lends a crispness. That's a little bit different, but the other thing I always get from it is I always get a flavor that really reminds me of powdered sugar. And I may be insane on that one. Uh, boy, I have to say I've never come up with that. Yep. Yeah, well, there you go. So to me, it's simultaneously dry and crisp, but also kind of that very fine powdery sugar type feel to it. Corn, on the other hand, is candy sweet and slick in a very large number of ways. And if used in mass quantities, definitely gives a corn aroma to the beer. And I'm sure you've detected that before, Denny. Yeah. Uh, you know, 
mass quantities. Define mass quantities. 30, 40%. Oh, yeah. I don't think I've ever gone above maybe like 20% or so. So I may have missed out on that. And by the way, I think you can see some of this like in the 45th IPA that we tasted in the last show, right? Where we were talking about there's a little bit of sweetness there that we don't think is from fermentation. And we were wondering if that, you know, whatever that was, 5%, 5.5% addition of of corn was actually doing that little bit of work. Hard to say unless you brewed the same thing without it to compare, huh? Right. So I might have to do that. I'll tell you right now, the best way I can think of for you to learn the difference between how rice tastes in a beer and the way that corn tastes in a beer is to drink Budweiser, which is rice, and side by side with a bush, which is corn. I think if you try those two, you'll really kind of understand the difference. I actually, even though I make cream ale with corn and I put corn into the 45 IPA, I think I actually generally prefer rice as an adjunct in a beer because I like that sort of chance that it just disappears. Yeah, I'm I'm the same way, man. And I I will use corn if I specifically want to get some flavor out of it. But uh, you know, if I don't really want it, the flavor, uh, I'll use rice kind of in the same way that I use sugar. All right, so now how do you go and use rice and corn? Well, we're going to go from the most difficult to the least difficult. We have to start with actually using rice and corn grits. And I've done this a lot. It is, I think, the the way that you get the best flavor, but it's also the, the largest pain in the butt. And it requires a special technique because starch, as held in grain, is actually held in sort of a crystalline format. Like it's caged up and bound up together. And so one of the tricks that we have to do as brewers is to get that starch to unfurl itself and become free-floating in the liquid. Because it's once it's free-floating in the liquid, the enzymes can act on it. Everything can go muncha, 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 muncha. For barley, wheat, oats, and most of the other things that we use, we're in good luck. That explosion, or what they call gelatization, happens at or below mashing temperatures. Rice and corn, on the other hand, don't. Their gelatization temperatures are well above mashing temperatures. I think they're both up around 185. That, that sounds right, yeah. So you have to do something in order to get that to break apart explode and become available to the the enzymes. Otherwise, you're just going to have a lot of starch floating around your beer. And that's no fun. So what American brewers had developed was what they call the American cereal mash. And it's basically a way to gelatinize the starch and get it ready to use in the beer and also infuse heat into your main mash. So what they'll do is they'll actually run two mashes at the same time, one of which is just the corn or rice grits. So you take your, your whole corn, your whole rice, and you break it up in a mill into grit size pieces. You can do this actually with a Corona mill pretty well. And I've done that a lot, by the way, doing 20 pounds of rice through a Corona mill is hard work. <laughs> Forget it, man. Yeah. It's not fun, but it's possible. What you do then is you take those grits and you combine them in a side cooker and you basically make porridge, but you make the porridge. And once you get it stirred together while stirring constantly, you bring that whole porridge to a boil and you keep it boiling for 15, 20 minutes or until it really thickens up. And by the way, when I say thickens up, this stuff is going to turn into the world's worst, thickest sputtering rice or corn lava. And you really do not want it to sputter onto you. So you have to be really careful while you're stirring. What you do is you get that. So basically you've cooked it, you've turned it into mush and then you add cold water to it to 
cool it down into the 150s. And then you add some barley malt to it. And this is one of the most interesting reactions I've ever seen in my in my life. You add water to this thick mush and it still doesn't really seem to thin out. It's still polenta and it's still concrete. And then you go and you add a small portion of two or six row malt that you've crushed up and you stir that in. And the effect is fascinating because almost instantly by the time you hit that mash with the the barley, it completely slackens. It just goes loose. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool, man. Then you let that sit for a little while, about, say, 20 minutes to start to break down the starch. And then, again, while stirring, you bring the whole mash back up to a boil. And once you're at a boil, you add that into your main mash to infuse the heat and raise your mash temperatures. And it's a very, very interesting process to do. It's a hell of a lot of work. But I still think it actually gives you know a chance for some of the best flavors. However, having said that, I rarely do it. Yeah, I'm just like you, man. I go the easy way. If I want to use rice, I use minute rice directly into the mash. If I want to use corn, I use flaked maize directly into the mash. It's way easier. Uh, I don't detect any difference in flavor from doing that laborious uh, cereal mash. Uh, if you if somebody does and they think it's worth the effort, be my guest. I'm not doing it. Flakes are arguably the easiest thing in the entire universe to do because they do the gelatinization for you because they steam the rice or corn and then pass it between heated rollers, these big metal rollers that flatten and squash it out, right? Uh, and that's the reason why we can use uh, oats, by the way, uh, that, that same way. And that flaking process dries it out, gelatinizes it, and makes it ready to go. So all you do is dump it into your mash and go. Um, you do have to be careful with particularly corn to make sure that whatever flaked corn you're using is in good shape and is fresh because corn can go rancid. So don't use rancid corn flakes. I discovered that the hard way, man. And uh, if now if I get flaked maize and I don't use it all, I put it in a very tightly sealed bag and keep it in the freezer. So don't use rancid corn. Um, they must still actually be mashed. So you you do have to still mash these. So there's no free conversion going on here. And also in the same uh, realm of, as flaked, you can use puffed rice or puffed corn. Uh, friends of mine make a uh, cream ale that they use making kicks. Because why not? Sure, man. And it's also fun when you pour the cereal into the, into the beer and watch it just dissolve. Uh, I uh, I once put together an iron brewer contest for my club, and we used four different kinds of cereal in it. Uh, there was like Count Chocula. There was uh, Honey Nut Cheerios. But I mean, which are which are wheat, right? And uh, I I didn't think I was going to survive the day. <laughs> Sugar high. Well, more like they were going to kill me for giving them cereal to brew with. Oh, see, and, and nowadays there are lots of brewers out there making cereal beers. So you were ahead of your time, buddy. <laughs> yeah. We know that, uh, like, uh, I think Kellogg's was just in the news for talking about they're going to use their leftover cereal to make beer. Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, I was just looking at that story recently. And, uh, yeah, they're using uh, leftover cocoa, pu cocoa puffs and uh, cornflakes, I believe. So let's say that you want to do something that's even simpler than flakes. If you're lucky enough and your homebrew shop is well stocked, they can carry uh, corn and rice solids. So corn sugar, every homebrew shop I think should have that, but you're not going to get a lot of corn flavor out of it. 
And the but rice solids is basically the rice version of uh, DME. Uh, so, you know, just add it into the boil kettle. You could add it into the fermenter if you wanted to. And I suppose you could even prime with it, but I've never done that. So, but it is the easiest way to add sugar from rice. Uh, I'm not entirely convinced that you're going to get much more of an impact from the the solids than you would from adding sugar. But there you are. It's an option. And then the other one is syrup. So now, despite the recent ad barrage from Budweiser about how corn syrup is bad and Budweiser has 100% less corn syrup than Miller does, they both actually use corn syrup in their various beers. Other breweries out there do use rice syrup. Um, But when you do pick up a rice or corn syrup, it's less of a problem with rice syrup, which you can usually find at, say, like a Whole Foods or a co-op store. Uh, But you got to be careful, particularly with corn syrup. Uh, If you go and you pick up Cairo, which is the most common corn syrup out there on the market that consumers can get their hands on, it's flavored with vanilla. And and preservatives and all kinds of stuff you don't want in your beer. So be careful when you do that, because unless you want to make a vanilla cream ale that may or may not ferment out, don't use the Cairo. (laughs) Yeah, forget it. Says says the boy from the South who is probably going to be formally exiled. (laughs) Well, we're not saying don't use, I mean, you can make a killer pecan pie with Carol. You just can't make good. It's the only way to make pecan pie. That's right, man. All right. So now let's make this stuff uh, a word on the recipes. You're going to notice some very clear trends in the ingredients. It's relatively straightforward, these recipes, because the skill, again, does not lie in the ingredients. It lies in you. Fermentation schedules, uh, let's talk about these a little bit. There's the traditional fermentation schedule. If you listen to Budweiser, they always have a spiel. It's like, yeah, we know of no beer that takes longer to produce, blah, 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 blah. Um, They have a very laborious 40-day-ish, I think it's down to 38 days now, uh, process that they claim is the world's most intensive fermentation process. Um, The drill is what we all know is lagering. You brew... You chill down to 48 to 58 degrees uh, Fahrenheit or 10 degrees Celsius. You pitch with a larger than normal yeast culture. Uh, I usually uh, double my starters from what I do for ales. You ferment for two weeks at that temperature, so somewhere in that 48 to 50 degrees range. And then depending upon your lager strain, uh, boost the beer up to about 65 degrees or 18C. Let it sit for one to three days to kind of do diastole rest and finish cleaning up and finish fermenting out. Uh, and then reduce the temperature for lagering either over the course of a few days or straight down into a crash and lagered at just above freezing for two to four or more weeks. And that is the basic traditional lager schedule. Like we've all done that. Yep. 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 That's, that's the way we started. I, uh, I do it considerably differently now. I, uh, Give it like about uh, four days, four or five days at 55. Maybe if I'm not in a big hurry, I'll do a week. Uh, if Then I raise it to 72 for about three days, and then I crash it down to 55 for a week or so, and that beer is ready to go. Well, and so then that's a kind of a modified fast ferment schedule. And yeah. so there's the whole, um, was it Narzisse? I'm not even going to try to pronounce that. But this fast fermentation schedule has been proposed by a number of people, and a number of people use it for doing lagers, particularly at the homebrew level. Um, and it's roughly like this is the close to traditional one, which is that you start at about 50 degrees Fahrenheit or 10 degrees Celsius for roughly three days until your fermentation is about half complete. And then you raise to the mid-50s, so around 12, 13 degrees Celsius for another three days. 
and then you raise again to 58 or about 14 and a half Celsius for the 15 Celsius for another three days. And then finally up into the low sixties, about 16 and a half, 17 C for a final three days, crash, cool and package straight to the keg. And the whole advantage there is that instead of taking, you know, 30 days or even 20 days to get your beer from grain to glass with a lager, if you're pushing fast on this sort of fast ferment schedule, you can do grain to glass in 12 days. And of course, nowadays, there are even some people out there who are advocating, uh, you know what, you don't even have to do lager temperatures or any sort of fancy sort of schedule. You can just go ahead and ferment your lagers warm and then package as you need. So ale lagers. You can definitely do that, although I, in my experience at least, it works better with some strains of yeast than others. Uh, Saf Lager 3470 is one that you can definitely make a really good lager fermenting it in the 60s. I tend to keep it in the low to mid-60s. I've never tried it in the 70s, although I've heard that people do that. Uh, and uh, it turns out really nice and clean. Of course, it helps that you lager it afterwards, but if you don't have uh, a way to keep it cool when you ferment, you can ferment it at your normal ale fermentation temperatures, bottle it, and then uh, after it's carbonated, stick those bottles in the fridge and lager it in the fridge. Works fine. I'll have to give that a try at some point, because I, I, I must admit, every time I do my lagers, I, I still feel the need to be cold. And I know you guys out there love the love that uh, 3470. Yeah, man. I mean, you should you should give it a try because it it really does work well. The, as a matter of fact, the last lager I made was made like that, uh, German Pills, and I thought it was great. Uh, I have not done one like that, and then a cold fermented one to give them a triangle test. Maybe that's something we need to do. Wouldn't that be novel? <laughs> yeah, actually doing an experiment, man. When was the last time we did that? next week. (laughs) All right. Now let's go ahead. And we've talked about some basics of the fermentation. We've talked about the basics of the style. Let's dig into some recipes. And this is going to be an evolution, a history in a set of pint glasses, as we're going to walk through a whole bunch of different styles, you know, basically as American lager has evolved. So I don't think you can start with the history of American lagers, or at least sort of modernish American lagers, without talking about your father's mustache. <laughs> My father didn't have a mustache. Yes, well, in this particular case, I mean Jeff Renner's uh, your father's mustache. And Jeff, in a lot of ways, is owed a credit for resurrecting the notion of what lager would have been like in a pre-prohibition period of time. Now, whether or not this is all 100% factually based, or, you know, if it's exactly what beers would have been like in the pre-prohibition period of time, probably not. You know, it's, you know, it may be sort of a, a, a hearkening back to a romantic period, much like a lot of people treat Cezanne these days. But Jeff did a lot of work to sort of revive the style. I think he talked about your father's mustache almost endlessly on the HBD. Yeah, it uh, it was a really big deal back then, and lots and lots of people brewed it back then. Uh, keep in mind, this was 20 years ago. Yep, but the big thing about it was a lot of people kind of felt like, oh, well, all malt or get out. And even nowadays, you see some people making what they call pre-prohibition lagers or classic American pilsners, which is, I think, Jeff's preferred term. Um, and they're they're doing them with, uh, yes, we're all malt. and But you can see from the historical records, that's not the case. So... 
it is pretty true that in the run-up to Prohibition, there was lots of adjunct use in American brewing. Otherwise, you wouldn't have had all the American cereal cookers in all the breweries. And the main difference that you'll see here is that the alcohol levels and the hopping rates are are higher. So you can kind of really think that this is a bolder American lager with sort of richer characters and also a fairly omnipresent corn flavor. The grain bill for this was eight pounds of six-row malt. Yeah, you could if you can get your hands on six-row malt, you can use it. I've also done this with two-row, and I think it's just fine. And then two and a quarter pounds of corn grits. And this is where you got to do that cereal mash process that we were talking about. Go in and you got to boil them in the cereal mash and keep on moving. Hops are very classic American. Uh, an ounce of Mount Hood for, you know, first wort hopping. And there's about 5% alpha acid. Three quarters of an ounce of cluster because you have to have cluster in something pre-prohibition. It's the rules. And that goes in at 60 minutes. And then a half ounce of Mount Hood at 10 minutes. So just a little bit of uh, an aroma addition there at the end. And the mashing is very much that American cereal mash that we talked about earlier. You know, getting getting things in, you, you mash your main mash at 104 degrees. You bring your cereal mash up to a boil. You do all the cereal mashing fun stuff. And then when you get the... When you get the, the main mash up a little bit, you take it up to about the mid-140s, and then you rest for 30 minutes, and then you add the cereal mash that's now boiling to the main mash and allow it to settle in at a temperature somewhere in the 150s, like 158 or so, and then eventually go up to mash out. It's a lot of work. Yep, yep, it is. And Jeff likes to do this with the White Labs uh, WLP833, which is the, the German Bach or the Iyengar strain. Uh, it's a really good strain. It's one of my favorite lager strains. And he does uh, fermentation at 48 to 50 degree range, so 9 to 10 degrees Celsius, for about 10 days until the fermentation slows down and then racks and instantly drops it down to 32 degrees and you know, basically you know, uses the, the remaining sugar in the beer from the ferment to actually do natural carbonation in the keg. That is a classic American Pilsner or pre-prohibition lager, however you want to think about it. And it is. It is a bigger, bolder version of what we know today. And to go into what we know today, we got to go with something that my homebrew club has always been doing. It's kind of a, a bit of a perverse streak because we used to have a very good relationship with one of the head brewmasters at ABI. And we've got brewers in the club whose whole raison d'etre is to make an American premium lager or American light lager clone. And the best of those came from the guy who taught me how to brew, who is named Doug King. The club continues to brew his recipe in his memory. The beer he called Doug Weiser, the beer of Kings. <laughs> That's great, man. Hey, yeah. Look, if your last name's King, you might as well run with it. I still think this is one of the best bits of nothing that you can have in a glass. It has an OG of 1048, a, fi a final gravity of about 1008, 5% alcohol, 19 IBUs, and it's only 2.3 SRM by calculation. And it is, for a five and a half gallon batch, about two and three quarter pounds of uh, two row, two and a half pounds of six row. And again, you could combine that all into two row uh, if you wanted to simplify your life and can't find six row. Two and a half pounds of long grain rice that you grind up into grits and a half a pound of carapils. And then again, this one's done with cereal mashing. So uh, you let the grain rest at about 120 while you're working with rice. You want to bring a gallon and a quarter of water to a boil. Add your rice, 
stir until thick and then turn off the heat. Right. You want to, and again, bring that rice up, bring it, bring it up to a nice boil and get it, get it going. Turn off the, the heat, lower the temperature of the rice to with cold water to about 100 degrees, 150 degrees, and add a half a pound of milled two-row. Let sit for 20 minutes. Turn the heat back on and bring the rice back to the boil, stirring constantly. And you cannot let the rice scorch, otherwise all your work has gone to vein. And then once it's boiled for about five minutes, turn the heat off, add the rice to the main mash, stir that in. And boom, Bob's your uncle. You should be at about 148 degrees and mash for one hour. Single hop with whatever you want that's kind of neutral. You want 8 to 15 IBUs. A lot of the guys will use like a nugget in this. So like an ounce and a half of nugget at 60 minutes. The water is a 50-50 mix of distilled water and carbon filtered uh, tap water here in the San Fernando Valley. And then they like to use the uh, pills and lager yeast, the 2007. And again. A big, big glass of nothing, but a wonderful glass of nothing. <laughs> a big, wonderful glass of nothing. Sometimes that's all you want. So now let's really get to the the big, wonderful glass of nothing. And that's the American Light Lager, which uses enzymes. So here's where we get the craft beer connection, because what they use to make American Light Lager is they use something like Amylo 300 from BSG or the White Labs Ultra Firm. It's basically amyloglucidase. Now, why do they use amyloglucidase? Because, well, they want to lower the final gravity. They want to dry out the beer. They want to have less residual sugar in the beer because residual sugar means calories. But here's the dirty little secret. It's not everything in terms of calorie reduction in these beers. Because while leftover sugar is high in calories, the real calorie enemy in beer is ethanol. It's always going to be ethanol. The stronger your beer, the more calories you're going to consume. So the real secret to light lager is a lower alcohol level. Say Bud Light comes in at 4.2%, and that means about 80 of its 110 calories come from the alcohol. Wow. Yeah, it's kind of amazing, right? 30 calories for everything else. 80 calories is from the, the, the ethanol. Now, and that's the reason why they use the glucodase in there, because they're trying to get rid of all the excess sugar. Right? They're trying to strip everything else out so that they can really lower that calorie count. Now, the premium line of beers, so say Budweiser, which comes in at 5%, 96 calories of its 145 calories come from the alcohol. So 16 more calories from alcohol for that extra half percent that they got going there, and then the additional uh, calories from the other residual pieces left over. So now, why is this also a craft beer connection? Because this is exactly the same stuff they're using to make Brute IPA, which means that Brute IPA is IPA light. Okay, I, I think that that's been pretty obvious. Well, I know, but I'm just saying is a lot of people don't really stop to think that American craft brewers have just borrowed a technique from American big brewers. Here's what I'm calling Drew Light. Five and a half gallons, an original gravity only 1037, right? So we're not going very big because again, booze is calories. Eight IBUs, which is exactly the number of IBUs that Bud Light has. 2.6 SRM and four and a half percent ABV. And my grain bill for this is pretty straightforward. Five and a half pounds of American Pilsner malt, two and three quarters pounds of either flaked rice or flaked corn. Use a low mineral water. Uh, just make sure that you have 50 parts per million of calcium for conversion. Single infusion rest at 60 minutes at 148 degrees. And then I add one dose of either the Amla 300 or the White Labs Ultra Firm to the mash. Follow the package instructions because I can never remember them until I look at the package. 
and then allow that to rest for 60 minutes, raise to mash out at 168 degrees for 10 minutes. And then when in the boil, one of the lowest amounts of hops you're ever going to use in your life. Do you have to use a magnifying glass to see it? Kind of, because it's an eighth of an ounce of Magnum for 60 minutes and a quarter ounce of Willamette at knockout. Now, and by the way, that quarter ounce of Willamette at knockout is not a traditional addition, but I want a little bit of hop aroma. And then for yeast, yeah, you can go ahead and use uh, Denny's favorite there, the Saf Lager, the W3470, White Labs 830, Y-Yeast 2124, or the Y-Yeast 2007. I really miss, uh, what was it? It was 2035, I think was American Lager. And I don't think they they released that one anymore. Ferment, I do this by uh, cooling completely down to 48 degrees. And then this works perfectly well with either a traditional lagering method or to do like one of the fast ferment methods, I think actually works just fine here. What do you think? Are you going to have a Drew Light, Denny? Uh, if you send me some, I'll drink it, but I won't be brewing it. <laughs> uh, you know, man, it's just like, I just do not like those beers, especially when I see that hot bill. I know that it's going to be way too sweet for my tastes. It is actually tied for the smallest amount of hops that I use in a in a beer. The smallest amount that's also tied with it is my mild. My mild also ha- only has whatever that is, 0.38 ounces of hops. Right. Now, being home brewers, we naturally also go big. So here's my my version of a better quality malt liquor. Do you, do you remember the days when it seemed like a bunch of the craft brewers like uh, Pizza Port and Dogfish Head and those guys, they were all making craft malt liquor? I remember, uh, I think it was the Blue Bonnet in uh, in Texas had a uh, malt liquor category one year. And to judge it, they drank the bottles. Uh, they drank from the bottles, which were in paper bags as they were sitting around a dumpster. Yeah, well, and Dogfish Head used to release their uh, their 40s of malt liquor in paper bags too. But I mean, commercially malt liquor is basically kind of an amped up American lager that they pump out really, really fast, usually use a lot of sugar and it makes for really kind of a a headbanger of a beer for cheap. This is sort of a more refined Imperial Pilsner version of it, if you will, as refined as you can you know, say malt liquor is going to be. I'm calling this one top 40 gold and it's five and a half gallons at a 1084 OG. 22 IBUs, comes in at about 4.4 SRM, and comes in at a whopping 9% ABV. Oh, that hurts just thinking about it. Yeah, and by the way, commercial examples usually run somewhere between, say, 6.5 to 8.5, unless you're talking about 4 loco, which comes in at like 12%, but let's not talk about 4 loco. Malton Grain Bill, this is going to seem very familiar. 14 pounds of American Pilsner malt, 3.5 pounds of flake corn. Mash at 150 for 60 minutes. Hop with a half ounce of Magnum for 60 minutes. And then ferment with the lager strain of your choice. You can actually even also do this with, say, White Labs 001, 1056. That's the whole complex as well. Also, make sure you add some yeast nutrient to this. <laughs> just to give the <laughs> yeah. just give your yeast something to go with. But if you, if you ferment that and you actually do this with a more traditional lager technique or even the fast ferment lagers, I think you'll actually be surprised at how refined a beer you'll actually get out the other side, as opposed to say going down and getting yourself a Hassenreff or a private stock, a you know, old English or or even a steel reserve. Give this a try if you're in the mood for something that can be both sweet and crisp and also alcoholic, but not too heavy. It's just kind of fun. What do you think? Would you make that one? <laughs> 
I'm sorry, man. Uh, I feel like my tastes are very well defined, and that's what I stick with. There you go. So, I don't know. To me, the American Light Lager, it gets a lot of... Well, it gets a lot of flack, but there are some actually really good examples of it. And there's some, uh, well, there's a lot of really good technique to learn here. And it's a hell of a test. Yeah. I mean, it really is uh, to make a beer like that. Uh, Annie Johnson uh, has really mastered the style. Uh, when she became homebrewer of the year in 2013, it was with an American light lager that she'd brewed. So uh, maybe we need to talk to Annie about this sometime. Why not? I think we're going to see her soon. That's right. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this style of nothing that really requires everything from you. It's a long weekend with a hot lawn, and sometimes it's all you want to drink. So give it a shot, or are you afraid you can't handle it? (laughs) Oh, boy. I don't want to go there. Remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget, we have an upcoming Q&A episode on the main show, so get us your questions at questions at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrew forum out there known to mankind and some only known to weird alien hippies. Are you uh, inferring something? No. I'm straight out saying it. Okay. And of course, you can always find us at experimentalbrew.com. And don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the hhabrewswag.com code word experimental, Amazon, Brewers Friends, or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... Wings of Rescue. They are a killer 501c3 all-volunteer organization that flies pooches from shelters where they would probably be euthanized to no-kill shelters. It's a wonderful cause. Please go click on that Patreon button at experimentalbrew.com and throw us a few bucks to pass on to them. Yeah, and by the way, the end of the month is coming up just shortly after this episode, and we're taking whatever funds we have at the end of June here and using those to go to Wings of Rescue. So if you want to donate to Wings of Rescue, this is your final chance. Until next time, remember to always brew wacky. Or brew experimentally. And the brew is out there. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. <laughs>